Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Beat the Clock with Ty and Kai. We thank you deeply for joining us for our inaugural episode. Each episode is going to be released every Monday morning during the NBA season and postseason at 12 noon Eastern, and we'll have approximately one to two hours of runtime. We're going to be going over everything from NBA draft prospects in the States and overseas to locker room drama, trade rumors, player versus player breakdown, and game analysis with the occasional hot take sprinkled in. In the future, we'll be inviting guests to speak, ranging from friends and family to sports analysts and more. Seeing as this is our first episode, we're going to take a little bit of time to break down our reasons for joining one another in co-hosting this podcast, as well as what we hope to accomplish with starting Beat the Clock. To begin, I'll have my best friend Malachi, also known as Kai, give an introduction, and then I will share my own. What up, guys? I want to introduce myself. I am Malachi, or Kai. I am 22, and I have a ton of love for the game of basketball. A little about me. My favorite team is the Philadelphia 76ers. My favorite player is Kevin Durant. And my favorite team of all time has to be the Bad Boy Pistons. I am very grateful to start this podcast and have Tyler be the co-host with me. This is something I've always wanted to do. So if you guys have any opinions on how to make this better, please reach out to us on our social media page on Instagram at Beat the Clock Official. Now, Tyler, take it away. Yeah, I totally agree with Malachi. Definitely send in any feedback you guys might have. We are doing this for fun, but we want it to be a serious and informative experience for all of our listeners. Anyway, to get into my introduction, I'm Tyler. I'm 21, and I've been a basketball fan since around 2015. I played a little bit when I was a kid, but I didn't really get into the sport. And the first time I seriously watched basketball was the first Cavs v. Warriors Finals in 2015. The way LeBron played just interested me. Although I'm no longer that much of a LeBron fan and the new Space Jam sucked. My favorite team is also the Sixers, same as Malachi, really just because I live for Philly sports, except for the Flyers. Screw the Flyers. My favorite all-time team has to be the 1984 Celtics with Ainge, Carlisle, Bird, McHale, and Parrish. Just a lot of great players on that team and they won the chip that year. Uh, my favorite current player has to be Joel Embiid, but before him it was D. Rose, and I really liked his comeback 50-point game a few years ago for the T-Wolves. I was really happy that that happened to him. I do think he could have been the greatest guard of all time had he not been injured, either at the 1 or 2. My favorite all-time legend has to be Larry Bird. We share the same last name, and I think he's the best small forward to ever play basketball. I really like Larry mainly because he was just such a competitor and vibed with his trash-talking even when I first got into basketball. I've never really been that gifted at the sport, but I would always talk as much shit as possible on the court. I think that's about it for the introduction, so let's jump into our first topic ever. So to start off, I'd like to talk about the Celtics versus Sixers season opener. The Celtics won 126 to the Sixers is 117. Malachi, give me your initial thoughts on that game. Boston looked dominant. As defense-wise, they look like they're going to be in the top of the league. Sixers starting five actually did really good this game, but if you look at their bench, our leading scorer with 21 minutes was Milton, and he had five points. Yeah, that is absolutely awful. I really I really think that's the biggest weak point of the Sixers, even in recent years. I think it's always been the worst part of the Sixers is the bench. It's a very consistent problem, and I also think it's a coaching problem as well because – when you look at our bench unit coming off the floor, I feel like we don't ever compensate for the weaknesses of, of our players that come off the bench. We're always focused on our starters and how to get them assimilated with each other. We never look at the second unit as a part of the team, I don't think. And I think that really hurts us because those guys are sort of left to fend for themselves offensively and defensively. Um, it's really hard, or it seems like it's hard for our front office to assemble a group of guys in the second unit that complement each other in more than just one way. What do you think about that? I would agree with that. I think the coaching staff needs to rotate better. So if our bench is, or the Sixers bench is that bad, you have to rotate and say you're pulling Maxi out and putting Milton in, you have to let him run with some of the starters. Because if we do a full bench rotation, I mean, you can see it with the Celtics. Our bench scored it. At most, 12 points, and they had two guys. Williams with 15 and Brogdon with 16. Right there, they both outscored her, or even or even with our bench. Yeah, they played. I mean, I have to admit, they played spectacularly. I mean, the whole of the Celtics played spectacularly, but I think the biggest 
I mean, obviously, the biggest thing we have to talk about is the fact that both Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum had 35 apiece. These are two young guys, aren't even in their primes yet in terms of age, and they're coming out in the season opener versus arguably the their biggest rival in their conference, although that can be disagreed with. Um, and they're showing up. I mean, and they're showing up big, especially against guys that even have more experience than them in the playoffs because they really only found success last year. Outside of that, they were maybe a little bit behind the Sixers, I think, in terms of getting to the postseason and doing well. But still, the Sixers haven't left the semifinals in years. That's a really consistent problem. It seems like we either make it to the semifinals or we don't even make it out. And um, so what do you think about that? What do you think about these guys coming in with not many veteran players on their team outside of Al Horford and performing like that in an opener, a big game? So I think it helps that they were home. I mean, they are ballers. I will give it to them, Tim and Brown. I'm actually a huge Brown fan just because, to me, yeah plays defense more than Jason Tatum, but Jason Tatum is a dog. He's offensively, one-on-one, he'll tear you apart. Funny thing with Boston is Al Horford. I am a Sixers fan, and when he came to Philadelphia, it did not work at all. Like It was the worst duo with him and Joel I've ever seen. It was awful. And then he goes to Boston, and he does amazing in Boston. It seems like he always does good in Boston for some reason. I think it's the scheme Boston has, or the coaching that they have that it just fits him, which is crazy because he is slow. He did approve in his shooting, which helps him, but how can you guard Joel? Like, I mean, I think it's crazy too that if you take a look at Boston, they lost Ime Udoka because of the you know scandal going on there with the Boston mm-hmm. Celtics. And you know, their assistant coach who's worked under both Brad Stevens. And Ime Yudoka comes in and does really well. His name eludes me at this moment. but And he does really well. I mean, he didn't look like he made many changes from Ime's scheme from last year. Um, but the Celtics overall look really good. And I think you're right. I think Al Horford only fits into their scheme because for some reason the Celtics staff just really know how to play around him. And I think that shows how much better their staff is than the Sixers staff. I would agree. I hate to say it I because I am a doc. Rivers fan, but there has been a thing with the Sixers only making the semifinals, and then somehow we can't get past that. Is it? It could be a players thing, or it could be a coaching staff. I don't know. I mean, the only time Doc has won a finals was with Boston, and I mean the Clippers. He had a great squad. He could never get out. Well, but even take a look, and part of the reason why I think it's just an overall um, coaching problem in general. Take a look at Brett Brown. Couldn't get us out of the semifinals either. Now, I'm not going to say I don't think Brett Brown is a coach on the level of Doc Rivers at all. I I did like Brett a lot, and I liked the way he emphasized ball movement and defense, much like Popovich, which is where he came from, San Antonio. Um, But I will say without a shadow of a doubt that Doc Rivers is a better coach than Brett, but it seems like even with a completely different squad where we have – Great shooters, great guys off the catch, like Tyrese Maxey, who's proven he can done that. DeAnthony Melton, most of his threes last season came off the catch. Um, other guys, I think our weakest starter shooter is Tobias Harris. But we have really consistent three-point players that can make shots off the catch. Joel's drawing doubles constantly, and for some reason, we still can't finish with threes. I think that's a really big problem, and Brett faced the same exact problem our only decent shooter when Brett was the coach was J.J. Redick. And even J.J., unless Joel Embiid and him were running a dribble handoff, had a hard time getting open shots. Seems to be a really consistent problem for the Sixers, and that's why I think it's a consistent coaching problem. I don't think they're running the right schemes for our players because even with all the three-point shooters we have now, we're still having a hard time. I think it's the ball movement, if I'm being honest. I think Joel... Not trying to blame Joel. When it doubles, he holds it too long, or our guys aren't moving. When there is a double, it's coming from the opposite side of the field or court. My bad. And that person who a player is getting doubled should be either cutting because you're wide open to get yourself open to help your players. You can't just stand still and make it harder for Joel, which is why I think it's hard right now for the Sixers because Ben Harden feels like he has to be 
one and one, which it's I mean, he's scoring thirty six points in the his first two games, which is a hard and we didn't see last year. But it is making Joel rethink of what is my role. Well, and realistically, I think the point you brought up where we're not seeing a lot of off ball movement has always been a problem for the Sixers. I think JJ was the only guy we've seen in years that has really moved around off the ball. When you watch a team like Golden State and even the Celtics in a lot of plays um, that they're running, they've got guys moving around. I think every time I watch the Sixers come down the court in a a half-court offensive set, we've got guys just standing in the corner. Now, we've got some great corner shooters like P.J. Tucker, who's great off the catch in the last couple years, has been the best corner three shooter in the league. But we need movement, and we especially need movement when we've got a big body like P.J. Tucker in there to set screens off ball. That'll really free our other guys up who are consistent shooters to get open, and we're just not doing that. The Sixers are very standstill in a half-court set, and I I just think it's a really bad move coaching-wise. I think actually our best cutter actually comes off our bench, the Sixers bench, and that is actually Matisse Thibel. It might be because he's not... He doesn't respect his three, which you saw last year. He was really hesitant in playoffs. But if he would get that three and have confidence in himself, he'd be the best 3D guy. He was a first-time team all-defense. If he can hit down an open three, the Sixers become more dangerous because he does cut playoffs. He was great at it of when they did double, finding the open spot and getting a layup or a dunk. Well, I think sort of Matisse Thybul what we wanted for him was to fill in kind of the role that Rocco had, where he's a great wing player who can lock up the best player on the other team, um, but he can also make threes. I don't think we have seen that. I think you're right. He's not confident in his three-point shot at all, and I think a lot of his issue is in his head because his shot mechanics don't look bad. Um, And when he gets really wide open, he makes them pretty consistently. Next up, let's talk about the Lakers and the Warriors. Now, to start... Um, the Lakers ended up losing to the Warriors, uh, winning 123 to the Lakers is 109. But I want to start with the Draymond and the pool incident. Um, shortly before the season began, there was leaked training footage of Draymond Green punching Jordan Fool square in the face. Um, as funny as it might be, uh, you know, Poole wasn't too shaken up about it, and they seemed to have on the court reconciled and all that. I know the Warriors front office was looking into how the footage got leaked. That's kind of beside the point. What do you think about the fact that Draymond is such a viscerally aggressive teammate, especially to the young talent like Poole, a young guy who's coming in and doing really well for the Warriors? I think it's crazy. Just with Draymond and how he is, how he always talks trash, how he's always in people's face, and then in practice, Jordan Poole sticking up for himself and talking trash. Like, There's literally a podcast, I want to say, of him having a video of him saying he respects people that do that. But then you come over there and just soccer punch him. You don't even give him a chance to defend. You just come over there and soccer punch him, which... I don't think he deserved it, and I'm surprised there was no fines or suspensions for it. But Draymond actually does a lot for this Warriors team, and I hate to say it. Mentally, with keeping everybody together and the team together, and then defensive-wise, he's good. But I think it was just a practice thing. I mean, it's guys being guys. I think they're over it. I mean, they got their rings when they played the Lakers. They looked fun. Well, let's also be real about this. The Warriors organization is really committed to Draymond. Um, You can even see that in the extension that they gave him. They really want Draymond around. They know that he's important to the team. And I think think you're right. Draymond is really uh, a big piece of this Warriors team, more than I think a lot of people will realize. Because I think not only is he the defensive stalwart of the team, he's like this Dennis Rodman-esque kind of player just without the rebounding. But I think he's also really important on their offensive end because he sets up so many of their plays. He's a great facilitator, especially at the four. I think that's a really unique skill that a lot of fours don't have. I would agree with that. Draymond, I mean, two years ago, this man was hitting threes in their playoff run. Last year, he tried to. He's airborne. You're like, whoa. Everyone's like, whoa, this is, where's Draymond? Which I think Draymond, I hate to say it, could never shoot. I think he was hot. So he's doing it, but I would have to agree. Draymond 
passes the ball, moves the ball well. He runs that offense. I just think Curry is just dominant. Like, who's as good as Curry with the ball? Who can shoot as good as Curry? I mean, there's really nobody who can shoot as good as Curry in the history of the NBA. I don't know if there will ever be anyone who can shoot like Curry. I've never seen someone so easily take the ball off the dribble and pull up from 25, 27, 30 feet out or at the logo and swish it. I didn't even think that was humanly possible until I saw Curry play. I think it was the same for a lot of people because we constantly talk about how Curry revolutionized basketball. Now you see all these young players that came after him that shoot the shots he shoots. Trey Young, LaMelo Ball. And they're still not as good at it as Curry was when he was young. I think that says a lot about his skill and just how he's a prodigy. Um, there's really, I don't, I think he's a once in a lifetime, maybe once in an entire century of talent. I would agree with that. Also, I, what bothers me when people talk about Curry is they say he's all offense. If you actually watch Curry play, he does play defense. I mean, against the Lakers, he had four steals. Yeah. So he's playing both sides of the ball. It's not like he's saving his energy for the offense so he can drop 33 on someone. He's playing both sides, which is makes it even more impressive to me. Let's also talk about the fact that it seems like every year, even though the Lakers are a consistently poorly performing team, it seems like every year the media really focuses on them. And I know that's because of the star power and it's L.A. But when are we going to get over the fact that the Lakers are just not contenders? I don't know if they ever will get over that because of LeBron James. With having LeBron, I feel like you're automatically contenders, which I want to go with that Anthony Davis is good. Oh, you mean plain clothes, street clothes Anthony Davis? <laughs> <laughs> is good. But their point guard last year and this year, I mean, he did have 19 and 11 against the Warriors, but I hate to say it. Russell Westbrook is not their point guard. He is LeBron in a small, smaller body. That is actually being a little generous because he's not LeBron. LeBron is dominant and all like that. Westbrook can't shoot. All he can do is get to the basket and rebound. Well, what do you think the Lakers front office thoughts was bringing this guy in? I mean, he. how are you going to put a point guard that can't shoot next to LeBron? It's just a recipe for disaster. And that's been proven time and time again. Even a point guard as good as Rondo could not fit beside LeBron. He wasn't as good as he usually is because because he can't shoot the ball at a high clip. They Look need- at Kyrie. I mean, Kyrie was so successful with LeBron in Cleveland. And a big part of that was because Kyrie had great handle, could get himself his own shot. LeBron could play off that, and Kyrie could shoot consistently. There's been no point guard that LeBron has played with since that could shoot like Kyrie. It really goes to show how much LeBron needs shooters, much like Joel Embiid. Kyrie is a good catch-and-shoot guy, which also why it worked with LeBron. LeBron can move. Kyrie doesn't need to be have the ball to be dominant. That He moves more than Westbrook does. Westbrook can't shoot. So if LeBron, who's ball dominant, has the ball, the only time Westbrook's going to score is if he has the ball and drives or he's cutting. I mean, when he was on the Wizards and they played the Sixers in the playoffs, the Sixers literally let him wide open, and he was bricking everything. Right, Like, you can't do that as an NBA star. Like, it's crazy to see how he's gone. OKC averaged a triple-double. Who can say they did that in a season? Nobody else. Exactly. So you're like, oh, my God, he could. this is crazy. And then next year, he just comes out, and where is he? He's nowhere to be seen. He doesn't look like the same guy at all. And I will say this, too. I wanted to bring this specific point up. At one point in the third quarter, the Lakers missed 15 of their last 17 shots. I think that's crazy because their offense the whole time just looked sluggish, tired, slow. The only guy with any energy out there at all seemed to be LeBron. That was true of even Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook, who were supposed to be two pretty high-energy, octane guys. They just looked tired. It almost looked like the Lake, this Lakers team doesn't believe in themselves. And so that's a big question that I have, you know, going up against other teams in the West that have a lot of great young talent and proven veteran stars, especially in a team like Golden State. The Lakers had an opportunity to come out and prove that they really are contenders this year. I mean, they have three superstar or, you know, 
at least two superstar players and one former superstar on their team. Um, and that really, honestly, if we're realistic, that should be enough. I mean, you have LeBron and Anthony Davis who had just won a championship a couple of years prior. It was in the bubble. But that should be a team that could really do well in the West, even with just those two guys. And so the fact that in their season opener they looked so sluggish and tired, I think really speaks volumes to the fact that this team doesn't even believe in themselves let alone the media should be believing in them to be successful this year. Going back on the words, because I do agree with everything Tyler's saying about the Lakers. They have the talent there. We just have to see it works. But with Golden State, I want to target this one guy because last year in, in their postseason run, he was a whole new he was the guy in, in Minnesota. He was the one that I thought was going to explode when he was in Minnesota, but then exploded last year in the postseason. And that's Andrew Wiggins. I'm a huge fan of Andrew Wiggins, actually. When he started off the season or his career, I was a little worried for him. He started off slow, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. He's only going to be that college guy. He's not going to be in the NBA. He won't do it. But last year in the postseason, Andrew Wiggins was a whole different man. And that first game against the Lakers, he had 20 points, 6 rebounds, 4 assists, a steal, and a block. For that... Not even being your second option, because I would say Clay's their section second option. Yeah. Being their third option and being able to do that just shows how dominant the Warriors are actually are. And if I'm being honest, me personally, with how it's going, if Poole can keep stepping up, I would take Poole over Clay because he's more athletic and I think he shoots better. Clay, after his ACL, it's a little iffy. But I wouldn't be surprised, not trying to be rude. I don't think the Warriors would do it, but they could possibly trade Clay to get either a big guy to cope with the Warriors in their scheme or just trade them to see what they can get. Well, and I think what you said is really important about Poole, about how the Warriors could go with Poole over Clay. Um, it's important to note that the Warriors did not offer Clay a contract extension, and he is due for one. Um, they're now past the time limit of which they could offer that to him. I think that speaks volumes to what this front office feels about Clay, and I, I think it is unfortunate because I really like Clay as a player. I don't think he's overly cocky. I think he's a humble guy. I think he had some really unfortunate injuries, some really bad luck with injuries over the last few years. But you're right, he's not the same player. And I think a big part of why Clay worked in the Warriors' offense is because he was also such a great defender before the injuries. You can see he's marginally slower than he was now. I'm sorry, than he was before. Um, He has lost a lot of that first step speed on the defensive end that he used to have. And that really affects him when he has minutes because Draymond is expected to defend the other team's best offensive player with size. And then Clay would typically take on good guards um, at the one or the two, maybe at the three that had length and speed. And that was really important to the Warriors' offense and defense. They could get out and transition, use Clay's speed and his shooting ability, um, as well as his defense to turn in, that into transition. And the Warriors are really lacking that unless Poole is on the floor. Yeah, Poole is the spark. The only way I don't see them changing this is because Poole is a spark. He has that energy off the bench to lead a bench to keep him in a game, which I don't think Clay now has that. I think Clay's more the spot up. Where Poole, he can break you down. One-on-one, I mean, we've seen in this preseason games, he had that nice Euro, yeah. great finish. He can shoot. He's athletic. So I don't think he would get the starting spot unless they trade Clay because they need that bench points-wise. But it will be interesting to see what he does with his career following Curry and Clay helping him. He has a lot of potential. What do you think about Jonathan Kuminga? I really like, I think he's got great size and length. He's a high IQ player. But I think what he really brings to this Warriors team um, that Draymond brings a lot of is these hustle plays. You can see a few times in the Lakers game, diving for loose balls, trying to draw a screen or trying to draw fouls. Um, he's just really, really good. He's always making hustle plays. And he's got the body, size, and shot uh, to play well with the Warriors. I just wonder, is he going to get his shot because of the massive amount of depth the Warriors have this year? Do you think he's going to get his shot to prove that he's capable of being in the secondary rotation? Steve Kerr, I would say, is a great coach and can recognize talent. 
or if someone's working hard. I feel like if you're a hustle player and are diving for loose balls, giving it your all, Steve Kerr will realize that and give you a shot. Steve Kerr is good at that, and I think if he shows up in his opportunity, he will get a rotation spot because he is, I mean, this is his second year. Last year he was a rookie. He still had something to prove, and he still does. But if you're a hustle player, you get a lot in the NBA. I, I actually really agree with that. And I think what's really important to note about the Warriors is when you look at their roster, I don't know if there's a deeper team in the entire league other than maybe the Celtics. I mean, they've got Jordan Poole, Jermichael Green, Dante DiVincenzo, who was a beast for Milwaukee. He always showed up. Then they've got young guy James, James Wiseman, who's got a lot of potential. Jonathan Kuminga. And uh, not to mention, they also have Kevon Looney, who's a pretty consistent veteran. Um, coming off the bench for them as well. Looney, it, that will be interesting, watching Looney and Wiseman. I think Wiseman is better than Looney, athletic-wise and rebounding, which I think that's what the Warriors are going to need because they have all these shooters, so they need those second-chance opportunities, which I think Wiseman does better. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Looney does have the experience and the vet side of it, which may give him the upside down the road because he's used to it, but... That right there, those two players would be interesting to see down the road who actually gets a starting spot. Keeping on with the Warriors, let's see um, what we think about them winning a chip last year. Are they still the best team in the NBA, in your opinion? You have to say yes. Now, evaluate the power rankings. Who do you think in the West is closest to them in terms of who can challenge them as a team? I mean, there's got to be at least one or two. If everybody's healthy... You look at the Grizzlies. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The Grizzlies are a solid team. Grizzlies is a solid young team. They got shooters. They got they're scrappy. They're they'll go for it. That might be the closest one. Switching gears from the Warriors and the Lakers, let's talk about one of the big teams in the East, one of the beasts of the East, the Brooklyn Nets. I got to be honest with you, Malachi. I think that the Brooklyn Nets are not a real contender. I know they have KD, I know they have Kyrie, and they also have Benjamin Bum Simmons. I don't think these three gel together. I think Kyrie is a is a baby. I think Kevin Durant asking out last year for a trade is going to be a big deal in terms of chemistry in the Brooklyn locker room. And I also think they have no bench. I think they have an even worse bench than the Philadelphia 76ers. Ben Simmons may actually fit in. I, with the I disagree. Kyrie Irving can play off the ball. Durant can play off the ball. Ben Simmons will be their, to me, their ball-dominant player. He's better with the ball in his hands. All they need him to do is play defense, which he did for the Sixers, rebound, and pass the ball. You really want to take the the ball out of Kyrie Irving's hands and give it to Ben, the bum Simmons? Do I want to? No. But for it to work, they will have to. And that's Not the- every time. Don't. I'm not saying every time Ben needs to bring out the ball. He might think that because he's... It's bum Ben Simmons, but right. Kyrie is ball dominant. He will break you down one-on-one, but he can work off ball better than Ben Simmons can. I mean, I would agree that he can work off ball better than Ben, but I still don't think this team molds. I think KD loves to score on the ball. I think that's his preferred scoring style, and I wouldn't blame him because he's spectacular at it. I'd say the same of Kyrie. I don't think that Ben Simmons will be able to fit with the Brooklyn Nets, not to mention he's got two guys in in Kyrie and Katie who are very outspoken. And if there's one thing that we learned about Ben Simmons based on his time with the Sixers is that he is not an outspoken guy. In fact, he's so not outspoken that he'd rather stay in his mansion in L.A. than talk to his teammates trying to reach out to him to get him to rejoin the team. Now, as a Sixers fan, I'm sure everyone can tell I really don't like Benjamin the Bum Simmons. But that's beside the point. I don't think, realistically, he factors into Brooklyn's plans well at all. I mean, you can expect him to play defense, sure. I mean, he, he is good at that. I'll, I'll give him credit for that. He's a great facilitator as well, and he's great in transition. Brooklyn is not a team that's looking to run as much as others. I think Brooklyn will finish a 7 or 8 season. I think... At best... I think they all best. make the playoffs. The Celtics, Bucks, Sixers, the Hawks, the Cavs, Bulls, and the Bulls will all finish above them. So the seventh, 
or eight spot will be up to grabs. We'll still never make it out of the first round. Let's be real. I don't think the Nets make it out of the first round. I don't think the Nets can stand up to any of the seven teams you listed before them in a seven-game series. I don't think so either if they stay healthy. Closest they would be able to is probably the Cavs just because they are young and they don't have that experience where last year they did get a little, but they're still a young team. That is the only team I think they could possibly beat, but they won't be the Cavs won't be a high enough seed for them to play. Realistically, knowing Kyrie's history, I think that if the chemistry doesn't mold for this Brooklyn Nets team, that Kyrie's going to ask for a trade. I, I could easily see Kyrie asking for a trade. I think, yes, Kyrie and Katie have a great relationship. I don't think Kyrie has any respect for Ben Simmons. In fact, I don't think any player really in the NBA has respect for Benjamin Bump Simmons at this point in time after the stunt he pulled in Philadelphia. And I think that time will tell for the Brooklyn Nets, whether or not this team is going to mold. And I don't think it will. And I think when that happens, that Kyrie Irving is going to ask for a trade. Which is what Ben wants. Ben wants to be the center of attention. He wants that. So if Kyrie requests that trade, I mean, KD did it during the offseason, requested one, never got it. Right. KD will request again. Which me being a Sixers fan and Kevin Durant being my favorite player, I would say Philly go after him if you're trying to win right away. But... Who do the Sixers have to give up? I mean, realistically, you would have to pair Maxi and, and Harris somewhere in there and, and maybe even include someone like Melton as well. I mean, there'd be a lot of role players that the Sixers would have to hand over to the Nets that actually could end up making them a stronger team than the Sixers in the long run. Because if we've seen anything, it's that all the star power in the world still won't win you every championship. It would have to be Maxi, Tobias, Matisse Thibel, and it would probably have to be at least one or two first-round picks. And is that worth a championship final this year? And if not ne- this year, maybe next year? I mean, realistically, also, you have to consider Kevin's age. I mean, he's I believe he's 31 at this point in time, and um, I don't think Kevin has the physical longevity of LeBron. I think LeBron is a different animal. I don't think we will ever see a player like LeBron in basketball again, who can last and perform for as long as he has. Um, And I think, you know, even though this isn't a football podcast, he can be compared much to Tom Brady and that Tom is is in his mid-40s and still going strong. I don't know if LeBron has that in him because I think basketball um, is a much more fast-paced sport than football with a lot less uh, rest time. Um, But I do think it's important to note that Kevin only has probably a few more good years left in his prime, and then he'll start to decline, especially as a seven-footer. We see that seven-footers often have a shorter career than others, and I think that needs to be taken into consideration. I think any team that looks to trade for Kevin Durant, if he does ask for a trade request, should think about that and, and the real consequences of breaking down their team and offering as much as they would have to offer for Kevin. So would you, going back to the Sixers, because that's our team, would it be worth them to trade our franchise player, Tyrese Maxey, for possibly two finals? I don't believe so. I realistically think that as much as I would love a championship in Philadelphia, I love Tyrese Maxey more than I think I'd love a championship. He really is the people's player on the Sixers. He fills in that role that I think Matisse Tybel did a few years ago before we had Maxey. Everyone loves Matisse Tybel. Everyone loves Tyrese Maxey. They're two young guys who come in. They play hard. Tyrese Maxey obviously has a little bit more skill than, than Matisse Tybalt does. But that also comes with the um, size of Maxey. He's very quick. He's got physical gifts that Tybalt Ty, uh, might not have. I think if the Sixers really wanted to win a championship, they should stick with the roster they have, maybe acquire a few more shooters. I don't think that trading everything we have in our future is the right move. I don't think it was ever the right move. I don't even know if I fully think that the process that Hinky started was the right move for the six. But we trusted it, so we did right indeed. Now. All those uh, tough years for sure. It was great when the tickets were that cheap, though. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. You can go to a game for like twenty bucks, and you're like, "Whoa!" The only person I would say that going back to when you said LeBron, I thought he was going to be the next LeBron. But right away, he was injury-prone. And I think he's going to stay injury-prone because of how big he was. Right. And I thought that was going to be Zion Williams with the Pelicans. 
I thought the Pelicans are a great team. They are a sleeper team in the West. But can Zion Williams stay healthy? First couple years, he can't. Well, and that's, we can even take a look, you know, just because of the fact that Zion had a great game against the Nets. He had 28 points, and the whole core, even, of New Orleans looked spectacular. I mean, McCollum was a solid contributor at that game. Um, Ingram had 25 points that game alongside Zion's 28. Valanchunas, I believe, had 15. And the Pelicans' offense is really unique in that even with the multiple ball-dominant players they have, such as C.J. McCollum and Brandon Ingram, they find a way to really, really make their offense smooth and natural with great off-ball movement, great cuts, and they have the physicality to get out and run in transition. I think the biggest what-if factor for the Pelicans and whether or not they can be a significant force in the West is does Zion maintain health? If he does, I think that the Pelicans might even be a challenger to the Golden State Warriors and the Memphis Grizzlies. The Warriors is going to be hard, but I would say if they can stay healthy, the Pelicans could be a three or four seed. I mean, Zion, everybody knows what he's capable of. Brandon Ingram, great ball dominant, great score. Their centers are athletic. Jackson Hayes from Texas, athletic. They have a vet, C.J. McConnell, who was great with Dame in Portland. They have a roster, a solid roster. Can they keep it up for a whole year is what I'm wondering. I realistically think they could. They're young. I think Dame really, or I'm sorry, excuse me, CJ really brings the team together and that he is that veteran presence for them. I think Valanchunas serves a similar role because Valanchunas played with the Raptors for a few years. I'm not sure. I believe he was on that championship Raptors team a few years ago as their starting center. Don't quote me on that, though. I think that those two guys help these young guys gain confidence and uh, sort of be secure in their play and their style of play. I think even last year when we saw a lot of the drama that was going on with the Pelicans, although it was not as reported on as some other teams, you could clearly see that um, C.J. McCollum really stepped right in and took on that leadership role that the Pelicans' uh, roster was lacking. I mean, he came right in, and one of the first things he said was, I'm going to get in contact with all my teammates and we're going to, you know, um, really work on the chemistry here. And I respect McCollum a lot for that. He was a guy that had been with Portland for I don't even know how many years. He was a consistent part of that roster. And he was always an outspoken voice among the Trailblazers. He was definitely one of the leaders. And he quickly transitioned into that role with the Pelicans. What do you think about that? I think he was underestimated in Portland because of Dame. Don't get me wrong, Dame's a great point guard. I love watching him. He is very he's one of the clutchest players in the NBA. If you actually watch it down, you can there's literally probably a ten minute video of just him hitting clutch shots. I mean, his most important one was when he hit one over Paul George in his face and waved him goodbye. Or even that buzzer beater a couple years ago in the playoffs and they all tackled him. That was spectacular. Because now there's a meme about it, right? which is even better. But yes, I think CJ was, his value was less in Portland just because they had Dame. And now we're actually seeing how good he actually is with the Pelicans. So to continue talking of the championship segue in the West and who stands the best chance, I want to ask you this question, Malachi. Has the championship window in Phoenix closed no why do you say that is i disagree i just i disagree with you because you saw last year that they were the number two seed i do not think they fall enough i think they have if healthy what they can to compete with the warriors if chris paul is playing like chris paul well i think you're right about that but I don't even think Booker has proven that he can consistently be a number one scoring option. I think he has proven he can play at a high level and he can get points. I don't think he's proven in the playoffs that he can be the number one guy on a team consistently. And I think Chris Paul's 37 years old. I mean, looking at his first game versus the Mavericks this season, he struggled offensively. And in the second game of the season, he did as well. He had two points up until the fourth quarter versus the Mavs. Um, And 
realistically, I just don't think that the Suns can win without a Chris Paul that not only facilitates as well as he always had, but also can score at least 15 at the bare minimum, which he has not done so far. Didn't the Suns beat the Mavericks, though? They did, but he still struggled versus the Mavericks. But earlier, or you think the Mavs are a top-tier team. If the Suns can beat them with Chris Paul only scoring two points, make that 10, where do you put them then? I think, I think the Mavericks are a sleeper team. I think that they can come out in the fifth or sixth seed. But I think what's what's unique about the Mavs is they have a group of guys, and especially Luka, and that they can actually challenge some of these better teams in a seven-game series. So your main is Luka is more dominant than Booker, which I agree. Oh, 100%. And Luka is more consistent than Booker. I would definitely I agree. agree with that. I think Luka is, without a doubt, like a 30-point game guy almost every night. Um, and on top of that, he almost always adds at least eight boards and eight assists in the stat sheet. I think that is really difficult to do for a guy that's Luca's size and Luca's age. I agree. Luca's also it's his, his body's weird. He looks very slow, very slow. He's deceptive. He looks quick. unathletic, but what he can do is crazy. Where Booker's the opposite. He looks athletic, but doesn't fully show it yet. I think if Booker was to tap into some of that physicality that he does possess, I mean, he's got great bounce. We have seen it. And he's got great speed as well. I think his game is more tailored around the fact that he can make mid-range and and long-range shots. But I really want to see Booker get aggressive and go to the hole more than he does. He's got a great offensive rebounder in DeAndre Ayton sitting below the basket almost every possession. If he was to focus on dribble-drive penetration, kicking the ball out to an open man, or if he had the hole taking it all the way, I think he could find a lot of success. I think threes are a really demotivating force for the other team. But just as they can be demotivating for your opponent if you're making them, they can be really demotivating for your team if you're missing them. If you're chucking up shots over and over again from long range that are rimming out, bottoming out, not hitting... That really slows down your team's tempo and really causes guys to get cold. I think if the Suns were to focus on the fact that they have a great big with great size and strength down low, move Chris Paul and Devin Booker into that sort of dribble-drive penetration kick-out scheme, they would have a lot more success than they've had. If Booker would drive more, I agree. The Suns would be better. I think that's one thing he lacks. He doesn't want to i don't know it's not maybe he doesn't not him not wanting to you just haven't seen it from him yet right but if he would do that it would open a lot more for the suns and even him right knowing that he will drive by you instead of trying to beat you and shoot a mid-range or shoot a three that would open up a lot for him in which i think would even boost their power rankings or their rankings even more in the west if he would show up and do that think about the fact that the suns have mikhail bridges he is a great three and d guy But he's so limited by the fact that Paul and Booker frequently play in the mid and long range. Now, he can still get open threes, but they're mostly from the corner. And he's a great shooter all over the arc. If Booker was to focus on a more penetrative style of play, I think that guy would turn into maybe a 15, 18 points per game scorer. With five rebounds, and he's great on the defensive side. So, I mean... He's a spectacular defender. So, it would boost him even more if... Booker would drive. It's just, will we see it? And if I'm being honest, I don't think we'll see it, which is why I see that you can put the Mavericks above the Suns, but all around, I think the Suns team is better. Oh, no, I think the Suns team is better. I just don't know if they'll hold up in a seven-game series against the Mavericks, mainly because of Chris Paul's age and the fact that Booker has not proven he is a consistent and dominant force in the playoffs. Booker is very much a regular season guy. He's akin to a James Harden, in my opinion. We didn't see much success from Booker in the postseason until last year. That was when he shined. And I don't even know, I don't have enough stock in Booker that that's going to be a consistent trend throughout the rest of his career. I think he's very much a player who gets in his own head and second guesses his abilities in the playoffs. I think what's unique and the reason he had such success last year is because Chris Paul brings that confidence to him. But if Chris Paul himself has to worry about the fact that 
he's not even playing well because he's so old. How can we put faith in Devin Booker? Yeah, I see where you're coming. Because Paul was a huge, huge boost for the Suns. Defensively and offensively, he was balling and all like that. So it will be interesting, Paul's age, if he will last that long, and what would happen with Booker. Because Booker does, when he's on, he's on. It's hard to stop him, man. If you get him talking trash, if he's on, you're going to be worried because he's going to be hitting. But I do agree. He does get in his own head. But if he misses a few shots, you can get that in his head. He's a whole different player where with Luka and like those bigger stars, you don't see that on them. So that could come in fact with their run. Next up, let's talk about the Bulls going back to the East. Are the Bulls a legit force coming out of the East? And can they find regular season success with Levine still recovering from his previous injury last year? I say yes. Right now they're doing well without him. We'll see if that stays up. If they can do well without him, they're a contender in the East. Because if they don't do well, they're going to put him back in farther a spot where it might be harder for them. Zach Levine is very underrated. People, he got put on notice last year when he actually was balling for the Bulls, which... I really like Zach Levine. He's fun to watch. A lot of people will like him. I mean, the man can, the dunk contest, watching that, the man has bounce and is crazy athletic. If they stay healthy, the Bulls will be a top five team in the East. One thing I wanted to shout out, too, to build off of what you're saying, DeRozan. I mean, where did this DeRozan that we saw last year and now we're still seeing coming into this year, where did this DeRozan come from? He had 37 versus the Heat with Jimmy Butler guarding him. Mid-range God, that's all I'm going to say. There's not many players who can say with a defensive God like Jimmy Butler on them, they can drop 37 with the ease that DeRozan did and without the best player on the team playing. Which is even more crazy because DeMar DeRozan isn't a three-heavy guy. So not at Curry, all. he's easily getting that. He's putting up eight threes a game. Rosen gets all of his points by driving mid-range shots. If you watch him, his mid-range game is probably, I shouldn't say probably, is the best in the NBA. Well, seeing as the Heat have had some pretty serious struggles starting out this season, are they still a threat? And and do you think they can stand up to the Celtics, Sixers, maybe the Nets, and potentially the Bulls and Cavs? The Heat is where I'm a little iffy on. It was really uh, their three guys. Tyler Hero, if he's hot, they're hot. Tyler Hero's a shooter. Jimmy Butler gets his own. Bam's a great center, don't get me wrong. But if their role players aren't hot, I don't think the Heat are all what they think they are. Tyler Hero went through a huge hot phase in the end where he was averaging around 20. Can he actually do that consistently? To me, I don't think so. He is a great three-point shooter, but I don't think he can create his own shot if Butler is not getting on. I think the biggest problem actually for this, this Heat team, as great of a center as Bam is, he does not have the size to stand up with the other bigs in the East. Even Al Horford is taller than Bam Adebayo. I believe Bam Adebayo is six foot nine. Six nine, six ten, one of those, yeah. yeah. And he doesn't have the physicality to stand up to some of these larger bigs. I think even Ben Simmons in the Heat and Sixers series a few years ago could body Bam Adebayo. I think that's a big problem for the Heat. He is really good at pulling down boards. But when it comes down to a seven-game series and you need that physical, dominant, inside force, Bam just isn't that for the Heat. He isn't. He's more of an athletic big. He can beat bigs by his quickness because he's smaller, but he can't bully him. I think I compare him much like to a Jackson Hayes of the Pelicans, maybe on a higher skill level but similar in physicality and size. I can see that. Jackson's a little more, I would say, athletic. He has more bounce. Bam's more, I would say, better at rebounding. And Hayes is a great shot blocker. But Bam, he's like a stocky power forward, but small. He doesn't fit that center role well. Like, Joel can body him. Jokic will body him. But those are like really the only bigs left in the NBA. Bam kind of reminds me a little bit too of a Draymond Green if Draymond was to play center, which we did see some of uh, in recent years. But I think Bam has the physical aspect that Draymond is sort of lacking. I just don't realistically see the Heat going toe-to-toe with a team like the Sixers. 
Um, and not to mention the Celtics, when they get uh, Robert Williams back, there's no way that Bam Adebayo could go toe-to-toe with a big like that. I mean, Robert might not have the size of Embiid, but he has the physicality and the length to shut Bam down every time. We're saying that now, but last year in the playoffs, Jimmy Butler is a different man. Jimmy Butler in the playoffs is a dangerous man. So it really comes down to, to me, what Jimmy Butler will show up. I don't think they have what it takes to make the Eastern Conference Finals. They'll make the playoffs for sure in the East, but I don't think what they have to make the Eastern Conference Finals unless they catch hot. Because if you're hot, it's hard to stop people. But Jimmy Butler is dangerous, so it really will come down to him. I completely agree. Moving on to our next segment, I wanted to talk about another team in the East, an up-and-coming team that's been discounted by a lot of fans and media alike in recent years because they're a smaller market. Let's talk about the Cavaliers. They've made a massive improvement to the roster. They brought in D. Mitchell, and they had the second-place Rookie of the Year, and I think should have been the Rookie of the Year last year in Evan Mobley. Are these two young men potentially the future of the East alongside players like Tyrese Maxey and Trey Young? I think the Cavs' future is, I hate to say it, probably one of the best in the East. I mean, they have Garland, great guard, young. Mobley, who I agree should have won Rookie of the Year, didn't. All right, great center. And then they brought in Donovan Mitchell, who's a star from the Jazz, who is, he'll get his own. Makes that team even better. And they were a sixth seed, I want to believe. Yes. Don't quote me on that. In the East last year. I think they move up to they could potentially be a 5 or 4. But then they're going to compete with the Sixers, the Bucks, and the Celtics. Strongest point for the Cavs last year was the fact that they had Garland and Sexton who could play off of each other. Now they're missing that. I don't know if I put Donovan Mitchell in the same catch-and-shoot stock as Colin Sexton. But I still think Mitchell can shoot the occasional three and hit it. I wonder, though, if that'll be a serious problem for the uh, Cavaliers this year in the playoffs. We did see in this first game of the season, they did lose to the Raptors. And I consider the Raptors to be one of the weaker teams in the East. Um, But that just goes to show how much more stacked the East is now than it was that the Raptors are one of the weaker teams. Do we think that in the playoffs, being a four or five seed and competing against the Sixers, Celtics, Bucks, teams of that caliber, would the Cavaliers be able to find their own in a seven-game series, or would they struggle too much without a veteran presence on the court with them? It would be a four-two series. They would struggle too much. They don't. Mobley being as good as he is, he would not be able to stick with if they would have to face Celtics or the Sixers. Their bigs are too physical. I think, for him. He's a great shot blocker, don't get me wrong, but he's too physical. Also, the starting five for those teams, I feel like, are way better than the Cavs. The Cavs are are very young, so that may also come into play, but I do not think if they match up with one of them, they would make it out. I think if they get the four seed, and you hope it would be a five, you would play the five, you hope either the Hornets or someone like that, that they can sneak up and get that. Yes, they would move on, but if they have to, if they're six, seven, or eight, I don't think they advance past the first. Moving right along into our next section, I wanted to talk specifically about the seeming power shift from west to east that we've seen over the last few years. Historically, the conferences have been very skewed towards the west having more stardom, better players, better teams throughout pretty much all of NBA history. They've been just a more dominant conference in the east. With the tides of power, per se, shifting to make the conferences, I'd say, fairly even in power, if not even maybe leaning more towards the East than the West now, what does that mean for Western dominance? And do we think it's time for the rise of the East? Or is the fact that the West has these big-name teams like the Lakers um, that will continue to attract the stars from the East over to those Western conference teams? So the Lakers will always have meaning. To play in that jersey, there's so many greats that have played in that jersey. What I am seeing currently, just my personal opinion, the East is definitely stronger, and a lot of people want to play in the East. Which is why earlier I said I think the Warriors will run the West. Because the Lakers, you think they have all this talent. 
LeBron and AD Westbrook, but they don't do anything with it. They can't do anything with it. The Warriors are the powerhouse in the West, but if you look at the East, you got the Celtics who made it out. The last playoffs, I want to say they went into a game seven before making it in there. That's a fight. That's a brawl. That's one game it came. If it would have changed, they're out. So you got them. You got the Bucks who have won it all against the Warriors. The Sixers still, they always seem to fall short, but if they work come together, they can be a solid team. So I feel like all around, I do agree the East is a harder to come out of, but the West, I'm not saying is bad because the West is still good. I mean, they have the Warriors, the Grizzlies. They have the, I mean, the best player in NBA plays on the West. I think LeBron. I think what the West really has over the East is experience. I think when you look at these Western powerhouse teams, they have a lot of guys who have proven themselves not only once or twice, but time and again in the playoffs. I think we don't have that in the East. There's a lot of young teams, up-and-coming teams, that haven't yet proved that they can handle that pressure. And I think one of the other important things to note about the West is that although they are weaker in general, I think the East having more hungry young teams in the West is going to factor in. I think the West still has a good chance in the playoffs. Some of the better teams like the Grizzlies, the Warriors, the Suns, the Pelicans. And the reason I think that is because I don't think those teams are going to have to fight as hard as most of those Eastern Conference teams to get out of their conference. It's not going to be as many Game 7s as it will in the East. I think that's going to be a really consistent trend that we're going to see in the playoffs this year. I know we're really only five days into the season, so it's a little early to say that. But realistically, you have to think the top four teams in the East could all very easily go to a Game 7 with one another just to get out of the semifinals. And that's pretty significant when you're talking about fatigue, especially if maybe they have a rougher first first outing in the playoff bracket. And then to even get to the Eastern Conference Finals, you're probably going through either the Sixers, Bucks, uh, uh, Celtics, or the um, Bulls. And then you also have other teams like the Hawks, the Nets, the Cavaliers. These teams are all going to put up a big fight. And we're also, we also don't want to discount the Raptors, who are still a great, solid team with playoff pedigree. Realistically, what you have to consider is that all these teams in the East are going to be fighting tooth and nail to get out of the conference. They're going to give it their all. Whereas a lot of these teams in the Western Conference might have an easier matchup, especially in like the 5, 6, 7, and 8 seeds. I agree, especially with the East. Going back, I hate to say it because I'm a Sixers fan, with the Hawks, I was at the game watching them. If you're a shooting team and you guys catch hot, it's hard to beat you. The Hawks have shooters. If they're hot, it's hard to beat them. Yes, you can slow them down or hopefully get them off their hotness and get them cold. Because if they're cold, they're cold. That's the difference between a team that's three-point dominant and not. If you're hot as a three-point team, it's hard to beat you. But once when you're cold, it's pretty easy to beat you. So you never know with the Hawks. I mean, they shocked the Sixers. If they were cold, it would have been an easy win for the Sixers. But they were hot which made it a challenge for the Sixers to actually beat them. And finally, to wrap up our inaugural episode, are the Grizzlies capable of coming out of the West? If we take a look at their first game versus the Knicks, John Moran and his squad had an excellent game. Ja had 34, and the Grizzlies' offense and defense looked good, but being honest, the game was much closer than it should have been, with the Grizz only winning by three in overtime. It is the first game of the season, though, and they're young. So let me ask you, Malachi, do we take this game with a grain of salt? No, we do not. We saw what they're capable of last year. They also this year have played the Rockets and only have won by seven, which you would expect them to be win by more. But Ja had 49 points, which you are seeing that he's capable of scoring. I see them down the road being a top three seed in the West. They might have potential to beat the Warriors. It just depends on if the Warriors are clicking. Because when the Warriors are hot, I don't think anyone can beat them in the West. Who do you think is the sort of second fiddle player to John Moran on the Grizzlies? Who's the second most important player on both offense and defense to the Grizz? Defensively, Dylan Brooks. He was 
injured a little last year, came back and impacted them. Normally on their get best player. Offensively, I would say the guy who won most improved and the second guard on that team, Desmond Bain. If he can keep up averaging that 15 he was last year and even a little improving more, they could be a threat. Do you think that the Grizzlies offense is one of the better greased in the league? I personally think their low turnovers uh, per game is really a highlight for a young team. Typically, we see young teams turn the ball over a lot. The Grizzlies are one of the lowest turnover teams in the league last season. Same going on, I mean, only five days into the season. Same going on, though, with this season so far. They're one of the lower turnover teams. What do you think about that? The thing that stands out to me the most, what you just said there, is young team. That is a lot. They're young and don't turn over the ball. Normally, it's mature teams that have vets that know that every possession is a key possession. Being a young team and knowing that makes you very dangerous, which is why I think they can finish top three in the West and even contend with the Warriors. Let's say hypothetically, John Morant faces a season-ending injury. We've seen that the Grizzlies are still a really solid team, even without Morant. There was last season a few games where he wasn't able to play, that they still won against great teams in the West. Do we think that trend continues? And let's say the Grizzlies get into a postseason situation. Can they still be a threat to the great teams like the Warriors and the Suns? Without John, no. With Ja, yes. Without Ja, I do not think they could beat the Warriors or Suns in a series of seven, a best of seven. I don't think they could beat them. I think it would be 4-2 any team if Ja's not playing. What What do you think is the most limiting factor then for the Grizzlies if they don't have Ja? Is it the offensive output? I think it's both. Ja, to me, is a little underrated on defense. He's really athletic, so he's good at staying in front of people. I think his leadership and his energy... Energy to me is a big point. If you can fire your guys up and get them going, which Ja does, his leadership's really good. If they lack that, what will happen if the other team goes on a 15-0 run and you're down and have to play catch-up? Or who's going to spark you to get that that energy back or those points back, which I think Ja does really good at? With the Grizzlies having the veteran presence of Steven Adams... Do you think that plays a role defensively and offensively that Adams is more of a bully ball kind of guy, great offensive and defensive rebounder, and a really sort of leadership-oriented guy building chemistry? He's always had great relationships with his teammates, and that's clearly carried over uh, into his situation with the Grizzlies. Do we think that Adams really anchors this team, not only metaphorically, but literally in the playoffs, if they get there? Yes and no. I agree Adams is a great big. It opens up the offense for the Grizzlies for allow them to shoot because of how good he is defensively. But I don't think if Ja wasn't there, Adams could beat a team. If Ja, if Steven Adams, I apologize, was their main guy without Ja, I don't think they could win in a series of seven against any of the top three, the Warriors or the, the Suns. I would agree with that. Um, But what I want to touch on more so with Adams is just the fact that I think that he's such a valuable piece and an underrated piece. I think without Adams, the Grizzlies really don't have any veteran presence that can keep these younger guys' egos under control. I think Ja is a really unique young guy in that he's very humble, more humble than most 20-something-year-olds would be in his situation with his talent and skill. And I think Adams brings a lot of that modesty um, and that experience that the Grizzlies need. I honestly think that, say Adams was to go down with an injury and the Grizzlies made the playoffs, I don't think they would make it out of the second round without Steven Adams and his leadership role on that team. What do you think about that? That's perfect. I think what you're saying is exactly right. Adams, with being a vent and how he is being that stocky, bully guy puts these young guys in their place when they think they're all that. Because you see Ja, the difference between Ja and Trey, both great players, I would lean more towards Ja. Ja is humble. He's not out there telling everyone he's the greatest, talking all that smack. Where if you look at Trey Young, he's doing that. So that's the big difference. I think having Adams in that spot humbles the young guys and pushes the young guys more 
which is why they play such as a team basketball, which is why they're a threat. Folks, that is going to conclude our inaugural episode of Beat the Clock. If you made it this far, we thank you very much for listening and hope you took something away from our conversation. As always, from here on out, please send any feedback to us via DM on Instagram at BeatTheClockOfficial. You can also find our link tree at linktree slash BeatTheClock, where we have a Discord server, our Twitter, and our Instagram all linked. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>